Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest in the Society of Jesus and is president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith, the Spitzer Center, and the Napa Institute. Father Robert Spitzer earned his Master of Arts in Philosophy from St. Louis University, Master of Divinity from Gregorian University, Master of Theology from Weston School, and his PhD from the Catholic University of America. Author of 10 books, producer of nine television series for EWTN, and founder of six major national institutions, Father Spitzer has made multiple major media appearances, including Larry King Live, The Today Show, The History Channel, and PBS. His academic specialties are the philosophy of science, metaphysics, and organizational ethics in its relationship to personal and cultural transformation. And it is a wonderful honor to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Robert Spitzer. Welcome, Father. Well, thank you so much, Father Hezekiah, and everybody for such a generous introduction. And of course, you got to thank the Lord as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all your blessings. We ask that you protect our country, our families, and our culture, our world, as we sort of struggle to deal with this pandemic. We ask you also, Lord, to bless our country in its social unrest, bring us back to peace, back to transcendence. We also ask you, Lord, to, uh, uh, to give us a restored sense of uh, morality, but above all, help us to restore the faith of our young people to re-evangelize this culture with great vigor according to your spirit. We ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom and St. Clair, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, I will be sending you an article that I sent into um, Priest Magazine uh, about a year and a half ago on, um, you know, evangelizing in a secular age. And I'm just going to point out some parameters. And for those of you who are international, I apologize for just a second here, because, um, uh, you know, I, I have these statistics from the United States. But what, what are we dealing with and, and what's happening? I, I would contend that the following statistics um, are really uh, being produced uh, by a net dec uh, decline in God, belief in God, faith in God in our culture. And uh, they're also being brought about by a net increase in what I'm going to call later ego comparative happiness. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. But th those two factors are producing a terrible phenomenon in our culture, namely a 51% rise in suicide rates among uh, younger people from 15 um, years old to 30 years old in just 15 years. That's 51% uh, suicide rate in 15 years. 61% increase in the rate of depression among the same age group in 15 years. Uh, furthermore, the homicide rate among young people, same age group, 15 to, to 30, 
in the last 15 years increased 22%. Uh, what I'm trying to say is when we take God out of our lives and when we um, replace it with ego comparative happiness, which I'll explain later, we wind up uh, uh, not only committing individual suicide, no pun intended, but we wind up committing cultural suicide as well. We are going up, uh, I mean, the urgency for evangelization is unbelievable. It's not only to bring people back to the church and to Jesus, yes, 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 but also to save them from themselves. Because without Jesus Christ, this is the kind of thing that happens to individuals and culture. And I've said on that topic. Second thing that I think is really important is two surveys that have come out in recent times. The first one is a survey from the Pew, uh, Pew Research uh, Foundation. Uh, this goes back to 2016. Uh, it's worse now, but in 2016, 42% of our kids, Catholic practicing kids, kids who are going to church, 42% and on the rise will become, not just, they're not just going to leave their faith. They're not just going to stop practicing Catholicism. Oh, a lot more will stop practicing Catholicism. The 42% refers to the ones that will become functionally unbelievers. So they're going to become, uh, as it were, either agnostics or outright atheists or so apathetic they could care less. The word God isn't going to appear in their vocabulary again. That is striking. So we are hemorrhaging young Catholics, not only from the, our Catholic faith, but also from belief in God at a rate of 42%. So that's a, it's a concerning statistic, but we know why. But just one more statistic, I, I won't bore you any further. This is the bad news part of the program. What can we do to rectify it? We can do lots to rectify it. But let's go to the other uh, uh, statistic. And that's from that CARA study, the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. Um, after this exhaustive study, they discovered that the median age at which our kids decide to leave, the median age is 13. So we've got to reach these kids in middle school, but we've got time in high school. There's no doubt about it. If we can reach them in ninth and 10th grade, they'll reverse tracks. You know, they, you give them enough evidence for their faith and they'll reverse track. But if you don't, uh, then we've got a problem. So that's um, my, my first contention. But we can do something about it. And the Maja Center has developed uh, something to, to help get us out of it. I'm going to give you one more website, if you don't mind. Uh, this is for young people. So if you're involved with young people, you have children, grandchildren who are just hitting that age of about 12 or 13 uh, or older, you know, all the way through college, um, uh, please expose them to this website. It's called CredibleCatholic.com. We are trying to put these seven essential modules that you'll see on CredibleCatholic.com in every diocese in the nation, and we're trying to bring it worldwide, and we will bring it worldwide, trying to get it um, not only fully translated into Spanish, we have it partially translated, we want to get it to every language group, major area around the world. Why? Because it works. Right now, in our beta tests, which are extensive, 94% of the kids rate this as either positive or very positive for turning their lives around for giving them the ammunition they need to defend their faith, 
to maintain their faith and to fend off their own personal doubt. That's 94%. It's not just in the middle school or the high school. It's also in collegiate uh, beta tests, both in the United States and Australia. Ireland will be fully using the advanced curriculum for these seven modules. In total, every single high school will be integrating it uh, into their, um, uh, what they call senior cycle curriculum, basically amounts to seniors in, in high school, juniors and seniors in high school, in every school in Ireland. Uh, I mean, obviously individual schools could block it or do something, but essentially the bishops are mandating it for uh, a, a complete uh, implementation throughout Ireland. So that is some good news. It does work. Please, CredibleCatholic.com, click on that big red button, seven essential modules, and start there. Because if you start there, you'll get a lot of ammunition. What are the areas that we just have to touch on? There's four major problems that are going on identified by the Pew Survey. The first problem that's going on is basically with evidence for God, but specifically with respect to science. So 50% of that 42%, that's actually it's 49% of that 42% say that the single reason they are forsaking belief in God is because they believe that science and faith are contradictory. Faith, it, it, uh, science is truth. Faith, therefore, must be false. So that's the first reason, and it's huge. A lot of them don't say it quite like that. They just say there is no evidence for God, and science has disproved God or some other thing. But it's basically a faith-science conflict. The pity is that Honestly, there's no need for it. There's a ton of evidence for God from science. Faith and science are not in contradiction. And so um, our modules address that issue first and foremost. It's paramount. Second major issue involving 19% of the students in the Pew Survey is the problem of suffering. Why would an all-loving God allow suffering? Seems that if he's all-loving, why he wouldn't permit suffering? And it seems as if he were all-powerful, he could prevent suffering. So either God doesn't exist or, you know, he just doesn't love us uh, one way or the other. Now, of course, this is totally wrong, too, because suffering and love do not contradict one another. Another false dichotomy. Uh, it's been certainly fed by uh, social media as much as the faith and science problem has been fed by social media. So that's another problem that has to be dealt with. We deal with the, the faith and science question in the first four uh, um, modules of those seven essential modules I just talked about on CredibleCatholic.com. These are, by the way, voiceover PowerPoints. Any kid can play these for themselves. You can watch it together with your kids. If you're a teacher, you definitely can download all these things for free and show it to your class. They work. The last two modules, six and seven, those are devoted to suffering. We have another uh, third problem called closet materialism. Basically, I learned in my biology class that we're just atoms and molecules. There's no such thing as a transphysical soul. So we've got to deal with that. They actually believe that they don't have a soul. 
So, of course, speaking of evolution, you can say for them, it's just equal to say Darwinian evolution is true as to say that a theocentric evolution that admits of a soul is true. So um, so that's a problem that has to be dealt with as well, closet materialism, and that's dealt with in module one. So um, there are several other problems that have to do you know, with the, uh, the morality of the ch that the church is teaching, but that does not lead necessarily to unbelief. What it leads to is that they cease practicing their Catholic faith because they don't have an answer to that, but they don't necessarily go to unbelief. We're now formulating a whole curriculum centered on, you know, justifying basically the, the 12 um, most controversial moral issues in the Catholic church and why would the Catholic Church teach that? And I'm also writing, uh, finishing a book on that, which will be the third volume in my upcoming trilogy. Now, this has to be dealt with, but it's a separate issue, and it deals with kids departing from the Catholic Church, not necessarily from belief. So let's stick with the first three issues. Oh, oh I'm sorry, there's a fourth issue. And the fourth issue, of course, is Jesus Christ, right? I saw on the History Channel that um, this expert uh, in scripture said that Jesus didn't even exist and that he borrowed everything that he had from Middle East religions and that Christianity is nothing more than a regurgitation of, um, of uh, Judaism and other Near Eastern religions. And furthermore, there's not a scintilla of evidence outside of scripture for Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera. The kid, not knowing any better, is mind-blown. And, of course, without even checking, boom, he's gone. So we've got four major obstacles here before we even get to, you know, preventing the hemorrhaging from the church. So um, our first uh, obstacle, then, is how do we deal with these problems? Uh, let me go through these seven modules for you. And um, if you if you go up to... Uh, the if, if you can click on somewhere in your, um, uh, you know, in your computer, if you can click on CredibleCatholic.com and just click on seven essential modules, you'll see the topics. All of these modules have a definite purpose from within the Pew survey and the CARA survey. So the first one deals with, as, as I said, deals with the soul. So we decide that we're going to deal with closet materialism up front. If you can just knock that out, you can create an openness uh, to the to uh, uh, the God and science problem, which is going to be module two. So let's go to module one. Uh, what do we have that that uh, really impresses the students? What is it in that module that gets them out of closet materialism into believing that they have a transcendent or transphysical soul that are survived bodily death? We basically go to two major kinds of studies. And again, the more palpable, the more you know, touchable evidence, the more hard, concrete fact, the better the kids will respond to it. It's just a fact. That's what they want. And of course, it must be scientifically validated. So we say, okay, that looks like it's the case. Gee, I look at myself, you know, and I, I take a skin graft and there's, those are the uh, um, cells. I can see them right there on, under the microscope. And furthermore, I can uh, tell you that, uh, uh, you know, there are electrons and protons there because I can actually identify the field that's created by those cells and the protons, electrons in them, et cetera, et cetera. So you can say, yeah, so it looks like I'm maybe just uh, all, you know, atoms and molecules and so forth. 
What's the evidence from science, too, uh, that uh, we have a soul? The first thing, peer-reviewed medical studies of near-death experiences. Two of them are really important that the kids need to know. The first one is the Van Lommel study that was published in The Lancet. This is the number one medical journal in um, uh, Holland. I mean, I'm sorry, in Britain, Great Britain. And then the second one is um, uh, called the AWARE study that was published by Samuel Parnia in the uh, Journal of Resuscitation. Very good peer-reviewed uh, journal. And that is even a better study with 2,060 patients. What's established in these studies, which are longitudinal studies, and by the way, there's other JAMA, uh, Journal of American Medical Association, et cetera, et cetera, studies that uh, you can see on our uh, modules. But here's the main upshot. Basically, when we die, 30 seconds after we die, we've got flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, and um, uh, no gag reflex. So basically there's no electrical activity in the cerebral cortex at all, meaning you can't do any significant memory thought, cognitional thought, analytical process, none. You can't do it with a physical brain. And furthermore, you have mere sputterings of neurons in your lower brain because you got fixed and dilated people, right? So you know the automatic responses that we have controlled by uh, the, the lower brain, are, are basically uh, all suspended, uh, although there are sputterings of neurons there. Now, of, uh, when we uh, look at that, what happens? The soul leaves the body. This happens in 85% of the cases with children and 20% of the cases of adults. Now, I'll talk about that later if you wanna ask a question. But for the time being, the main thing to remember is the soul leaves the body and it's looking at itself from up above. And um, it's describing everything that's, it can describe everything that's going on in, in the um, uh, operating room. And uh, it can leave the operating room and describe data outside the operating room, et cetera. So all these things are going on, which is um, um, describable by a person who has no electrical activity in the cerebral cortex, the frontal cortex, and even mere sputterings uh, in, in the lower brain. What's the, the point? It's impossible that they could be reporting these things accurately with their physical brain. But we'll talk about, well, couldn't it be a real coincidental hallucination? More on that in a moment. The main thing to remember is these are called near-death experiences, and there's there are really good studies of them. Now, what's important for the students is they say, okay, but how do you know it's really, really true? Well, of course, you know, this woman reports, you know, she says, well, during my near-death experience, I went, left my body, went through the, the uh, walls of the hospital. I'm looking at this ledge outside the hospital, looking back at the hospital from floating in the air out there on the third floor. And I see this tennis shoe that's out there that has been there uh, probably for 25 years since the construction of the hospital. And it has a worn left toe and the shoelace is stuck under the, the heel there. And so, of course, the uh, uh, research, one of the researchers for, for uh, one of the people who did a major study on this, uh, crawls outside on the ledge and finds the tennis shoe there precisely as described. Now she takes the pictures, she brings in the tennis shoe. I mean, how did that lady know? The kids are kind of going, yeah, how did you know? So forth. Then, uh, you know, Mr. So-and-so, we lost your denture. No, you didn't lose my dentures. Actually, uh, the red-haired nurse took the dentures outside of my uh, out of my mouth and pulled open this drawer 
uh, underneath a machine that looks like this and threw the dentures in there, slammed the drawer, and then they put the paddles on me. And of course, you look at that and you say, well, wait a minute here. Uh, how would he, he be able to describe her hair color? How would he be able to, de to describe where the dentures were put? But it, it's, they were there exactly as claimed. And this goes on and on because people, right, they always speak nicely of the dad because they go right through the, um, the walls of the operating room into the uh, uh, guest room next door where, you know, people are waiting for the outcome uh, of the operation, relatives and friends, and they describe all the conversations that people are having. So uh, to make a long story short, uh, the data is pretty impressive, but what really nails the kids dead on, what just gets them, uh, by the way, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, all the way through uh, college. What gets them is that 81% of blind people, according to the Ring study, 81% of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, they see perfectly, accurately, only when they're clinically dead. So after their soul has left their body, they actually can report visions accurately. So we have embedded videos. So if, if you go to these modules and you, there's a 12 plus module, 15 plus module, go to the 12 plus module. Those are uh, simple to understand. Just click on that and go down to, to where, you know, they're talking about the blind people seeing and this got these videos of these formerly blind, but well, they're still blind when they come back into their body. So they're blind again. But for that brief moment, they could see very well, describing scenes that were going on outside of the hospital, according to the time when trains were passing by. One lady and, uh, from uh, Great Britain, she basically uh, gets in an automobile accident, and then she leaves her body, and she's describing the entire scene that's going on and says, you know what's really weird? She says, I couldn't even concentrate on the fact that I'm still alive. She said, looking at my own physical body from down below, she says, the really, the thing that intrigued me was I've never had a visual image in my brain for my whole life. How could I hallucinate this without a visual image in my brain to hallucinate? I've been blind from birth, yet I'm seeing all these things perfectly. So you get why this is really significant, because you can't use a naturalistic or a physicalistic explanation for this. It just blows the kids away. They, they basically say, well, wait a minute here. How is it possible that they could see? But the interesting thing is what happens afterwards, right? So as we describe these things, uh, you can see that their uh, intrigue level, you know, you go to this other domain outside the operating room, outside of our world to a, this beautiful domain. And uh, 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 you frequently can meet Jesus or uh, a loving white light that people obviously uh, identify with God or with Jesus, uh, you know, both, and where suffering comes to an end, where people who are just racked in pain before they died, all their suffering is gone. They're just immersed. It, you know, they feel well for the first time in 30 years. And, and of course, they're being loved by this white light or loved by Jesus. Many times they're greeted by deceased relatives. We talk about what all those things mean, how these people can report what deceased relatives said that uh, that really pertain to um, um, not only uh, uh, you know things that they knew, but things they never heard of before. You know, uh, by the way, thirty percent of those relatives were never ever known by the people experiencing them. They just come back and say, "I'm your aunt Claire. I died, you know, forty years before you were born." And 
here's what, you know, happened. And here's, you know, tell your mother this and tell your father that and so forth and so on. And, and these kids come back, they, they tell them and you get the point. So what, what these kids, they come right off of this stuff and they go, wow. So you mean there's like really evidence for heaven and really evidence for a soul that'll survive bodily death and really evidence that God maybe loves you? And then we correlate that with Jesus's testimony and the church's testimony about what the, the resurrection is in the glorified body, what it, uh, the resurrection is uh, also in a spiritual body, what it is uh, with respect to love in the resurrection, etc. Yes, there are those who have dark experiences, um, but the, the uh, uh, Parnia study identifies more with dark experiences than the folks, um, than the Pim Fan, the Fan Lamel uh, study does, but it's, it's there. Uh, not everybody's going to have a pleasant uh, experience uh, after death. But we just put it out there and we just tell the kids, take note, take note. You know, there is, a, yes, a proliferation of very good experiences and near-death experiences, but there's also an experience of darkness as well. The second area is terminal lucidity. Don't have a lot of time to talk about it. But one hour before death, people who have truly radical Alzheimer's, severe Alzheimer's. So let's say 90% of their brains is, brains are filled with amyloid plactates, or you've, you know, uh, in many cases you have a hydrocephalic uh, a person, and that hydrocephalic person, it's the most amazing thing. They have lost 95% of their brain tissue, which is replaced by water in the brain and in, in the cranium. And so they've got only left 5% squished it to the top of their skull. And these people not only report high IQ, that, I mean, they're, they're functioning. They're going around doing math problems and all kinds of other things. And you just think, how is this possible? Then, of course, you have people who have been severely mentally challenged from birth. People we're talking about in the IQ range of 30 to 60. That's basically animal sounds, you know, sort of grabbing food and eating it. And, you know, not really, you'd think, you know, there's, there's nothing there. And, you know, you can see all kinds of severe trauma to the brain, et cetera. Well, obviously, these people are not thinking and feeling with, uh, with their, uh, their physical brains. But one hour before they die, these people who have no brain, functional brain left, are waking up and they're talking like you and me. They're saying, you know, I got to do those plans for my funeral. And, you know, of course, these doctors are mouths wide open, like, what? You know, and of course, this person who was thought to be completely mentally challenged, you know, on the level of a 30 IQ, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, they're speaking about, they're talking intelligibly about religion. And you go, they've never had an intelligible word in their life, let alone a coherent sentence about religion singing songs, religious songs, and so forth and so on. You never believe what happened to me. It makes you think about the disabled. Anybody who wants to euthanize all those disabled people, you're going to be responsible for euthanizing. Uh, it's not an idiot you're dealing with here. Uh, you're not dealing with a, a low IQ person just in their brains. What's really going on is they've got a soul, and that soul is in contact with God Blows the kids away. Enough said. I spent too much time on module one. Uh, the, the second area that we deal with is uh, the evidence for God from science. So we start off, you know, the, the module by saying, 
Okay, 51% of scientists are theists. It is stunning. Most kids believe that almost all scientists are atheists. I'm not kidding. This is what polls reveal. But in point of fact, if you look at the latest Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the biggest scientific um, uh, group out there, 51% are theists, 41% are agnostics and atheists, and uh, 8% aren't declaring. Okay, so uh, basically they, you know, they're keeping, keeping mums as the word. Uh, and we all know why. They're 10 years up or something else, you know, they're, they're going to be criticized. So, but 51% to publicly declare that they're theistic, that's pretty good. And by the way, I know a couple of you are probably physicians out there. 88% of physicians, uh, according to the uh, National um, um, uh, Institute of Health and also the um, uh, two other uh, uh, foundations that you can get right there on the modules, uh, claim 88% of physicians are they, they are religious, and 67% of that 88% practice their religion moderately or highly. So that's a very interesting statistic. So you got to ask the kids, well, why is that? You know, why in the world would that be? And so we can, um, the, the first thing is to say, well, do you think they're men and women of science? Why would there be some something compatible with science that would appeal to them? Absolutely. I, uh, the, the one fascinating uh, statistic, too, from the Pew was that 71% of doctors believe that miracles in the past and present are real. That's really fascinating because they, something, they have seen something in their practice that is completely inexplicable. All these recent studies that have been done uh, by the, on the power of prayer, et cetera, they're really good. But the main thing in the module, what we're dealing with uh, for the kids, is to simply say, ask yourself, do you think that men and women of science, men and women of logic and philosophy, do you think they're just going to uh, sit there and say, oh, yeah, I, I believe in God uh, just on a mere feeling or a whim? They're not. They're going to make sure that there's some stability, some consistency between science and faith. So there's, there's got to be some evidence out there. What is it besides near-death experiences and terminal lucidity, which I think influence a lot of physicians myself? What is it? With respect to physics, first of all, there's two major uh, uh, areas that have uh, you know, come out of late. The first one um, is uh, evidence for a beginning of our universe. So, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, and not just our universe, but even very um, uh, hypothetical um, uh, things like multiverses, string universes, etc. So, um, uh, what are they? They're, they're called the, the Bordovilenkin and Guth proof and entropy. So it, now the first one uh, is a proof that was put together by Arvind Borda of University of California, Santa Barbara, um, uh, Alan Guth, the high chair of cosmology at, and uh, probably get the Nobel Prize for inflationary theory uh, from MIT. And then uh, Dr. Alexander Vilenkin, uh, who was the, uh, uh, he is the director of the Institute of Cosmology at Tufts University in Boston. So now these are three non-slouches. I mean, if, uh, listen, if you look at the invited guests to Stephen Hawking's birthday party uh, way back in uh, 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 2012, I think it was, um, these three were there. 
despite the fact that Dr. Alexander Vilenkin read a paper on why scientists cannot avoid a, uh, a creation, which um, uh, one uh, person who was covering it for the, 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 the scientist uh, magazine called the worst birthday present ever. So uh, the, the key point though is there's evidence out there. And what is that evidence? Well, let's take a look at the Board of Lincoln Guth proof. And this is really important. Every kid out there practically knows, hey, wait a minute, our universe is probably not all there is. Maybe there's a multiverse. Now, multiverse is completely hypothetical, but what a multiverse is, a big, huge universe, that uh, a mega universe that's burping out little bubble universes. And our little, our bubble universe uh, right, our physical universe is just one bubble universe of its trillions, 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 trillions of other bubble universes in multiverse. So people think, well, you know, our universe, has, of course, is only 13.8 billion years old, but there's this multiverse and it, it could go back eternally. No, it can't. Hold on to that for just a second. Second thing is uh, uh, there's an area called string theory that has also come out and string theory has postulated, right? And kids know this, they, they, you know, that you can have what's called a 13 dimensional special continuum um, that includes space and time and other dimensions that will allow for very esoteric universes that can spit out other universes. Like when two three dimensional membranes collide in a four dimensional bulk space time, and, you know, burp out all kinds of other universes. So the string stuff is really important. You gotta, you know, kids know, you know, they're, they're, they, you know, you have to address it. The third is, of course, the bouncing universe, the old favorite, uh, which is now really not a favorite anymore because bouncing universe is non vi anymore. They, they don't really go anymore. Uh, in, in the modern cosmology. But basically, the, the objective is, you know, these are universes that expand and contract. And so if our universe is a bouncing universe, then, okay, our cycle, you know, is only 13.8 billion years uh, old since the Big Bang. But theoretically, right, the universe could have, you know, billions, an, an infinity number of times before our universal cycle, it could have expanded and contracted in a big crunch, re-expanded again and contracted in a big crunch, etc. So, uh, now, that has been pretty much disproved. Big crunches lead to total entropy. Uh, you know, the Fischler and, and, and um, uh, Lorman uh, theses and, and so forth. We, we also uh, have a variety of other uh, physicists who just poo-poo the bouncing universe. But be that as it may, Borovalenka and Guth covers everything. Because what, what they show, these three physicists, Arvind Borda, Alexander Malenka, and uh, Alan Guth, is that any physical configuration, right, that could be a universe, a multiverse, a string universe, any physical configuration that has an expansion rate greater than zero will have to have a beginning. It's an elegant proof. We don't put it into the modules, but you can always get the proof because it's right there on our big book. So if you go to CredibleCatholic.com and you want everything I'm saying in detail with every article cited, every single solitary thing, not just articles cited, but you want the math? We got the math. Everything you ever wanted to know about physics and faith, but we're afraid to ask. Just kidding. So that you click, so you go again, this is to CredibleCatholic.com. Click on the big book and just go to volume one. It's all there, including the whole board of Lincoln and Google. But why is this important? Because every single multiverse has to be inflation. You can't have a multiverse without inflation. But if it has inflation, it has an average expansion rate greater than zero. And if it has an average expansion rate greater than zero, then according to BVG, it has a beginning. So that's our first thing. 
So how about string universes? String universes nucleate. And as they nucleate, their diameters get larger and larger, which means over the course of time, their average expansion rate is greater than zero. And what about bouncing universes? Bouncing universes always have to have an average expanding, uh, expansion rate greater than zero because the new cycle has uh, goes out further than the old cycle. And the, then the further cycle goes out you know, even more from the previous cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things have to, you know, point to what we're going to call, uh, you know, a beginning, uh, not only of our physical universe, our universe certainly has to have a beginning, but not just our universe, multiverses have to have a beginning, string universes have to have a beginning, bouncing universes have to have a beginning. We're getting to the point where science is actually showing that every hypothetical configuration that we can have would also have to have a beginning. Now, this gets into a real interesting thought, because if that's true, then we're getting to the point of talking about a beginning of physical reality itself, independent of the fact, right, that, that you know, it's a multiverse or it could be a, a different kind of universe uh, or a multiverse with different laws from our own. Doesn't matter. None of that matters. All that matters is every multiverse got to have a beginning. Every string universe is nuclear has to have a beginning. Every bouncing universe is going to have to have a beginning. doesn't matter what the physics of that universe or multiverse is. Now, what does Alexander Vilenkin say about that by way of conclusion? That physical reality itself would need a, a, a beginning. This is what he puts. This is what he puts. This, oh, Vilenkin is the, the V and the BVG proof. Um, you know, so he puts it this way. It is said that a good argument will convince a reasonable person, and that a proof will convince even an unreasonable one. Well, now that the proof is in place, scientists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They must confront the reality of a beginning. Now, uh, let me just put it to you uh, real fast. What's the proof? The proof is the Board of Lincoln proof uh, and Guth proof, and it's also the entropy evidence. The combination of those two things, that's the whammy. It applies to everything. And it's two different data types converging on a single conclusion. Physical reality must have a beginning. Now, what's interesting even more is, well, what does a physical beginning mean? Listen to those three steps. It's real simple. A beginning of physical reality implies that prior to the beginning, physical reality was nothing. Physical reality, its physical time, its physical space was nothing. That means nothing. Second uh, point, second premise. The only thing nothing can do is nothing because nothing is nothing. And from nothing, only nothing comes. Third point. Well, Prior to the beginning, when physical reality was nothing, we now face a little problem. If the universe or if the physical reality was nothing and could only do nothing, it could never have moved itself before the beginning, could never have moved itself from nothing to something by itself because it was nothing and could only do nothing. Well, if it didn't move itself from nothing to something, then something else beyond physical reality, something else beyond our universe, something else beyond physical time and space would have to move 
physical reality from something from nothing to something when it was nothing pure and simple that's the implication it's a big deal and that's why alexander Vilenkin gave stephen hawking 2012 the worst birthday present ever so that's the the point at cambridge university in front of all the greatest physicists of the world just saying it's a really interesting thing the other thing that's really important are called the fine-tuning arguments which lead to the conclusion that there has to be an intelligent God. It's just give you one example. I don't want to keep going on. But the kids, they get mind blown. Go, Nobody else has told us this before. Well, it's perfectly good physics. And if you want every article in which everything I just referred to in the Review of Physics, Physics uh, uh, Review uh, Journal, uh, you know, in uh, all the biggest uh, journals of physics, you just go to CredibleCatholic.com. You just click on the big book, click on volume one, all the footnotes are there. But fine-tuning, just let me tell you, why does it look like this creator who's outside of space and time that can create our universe out of nothing, as it were, through his own mentative activity? What in the world do we think about it? Why say intelligent? I'll just give you one example. We give the kids four, but here's the basic deal. If You know... Um, we need low entropy in our universe, that is to say a high order in our universe, so that the universe can be big and huge and beautiful and expansive and orderly, and furthermore, so that we can get life to develop within our universe. If you have high entropy at the beginning of a universe, then you're dead. You're not even going to get to the point of a life form, let alone a developing life form into a humanoid. Uh, you know, uh, that, that, that would have even complex thinking activity. You're not even going to get there. So skip that possibility. Well, then low entropy, what are the odds of getting low entropy at the Big Bang by pure chance? Well, Roger Penrose, one of the most famous physicists in the world at, at, uh, at uh, Oxford University, calculated this. It's 10 raised to the 10, raised again to the 123 to 1 against. Well, what does that mean? Well, that number's a double exponent, and it's so big that in the exponent, the exponent itself is a trillion, 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 in the exponent. So you can imagine if that number were to be set out with every zero being 10-point type, our whole solar system to its furthest extent could not hold that number. It's the same odds. In other words, low entropy in our universe is the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys in a single try. This is highly improbable. The monkey can't even type four words of Shakespeare in a row in a single try, you know, during our lifetime, you know, practically speaking, you know, or at least certainly over the next year to have them type the entire corpus by random tapping of the keys in a single try is just a veritable impossibility. But that's the odds of low entropy. And there's only two solutions. Either there's a multiverse of 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 bubble universes, or there's a divine creator. But the problem with the multiverse solution is multiverses need fine-tuning too. So you're never answering the question. You're only moving the problem back one step. So we just... Okay, I gave you kind of the, the odds, but so what do you have out there? At the end of the day, what are you looking at? Significant scientific evidence 
not only for a creation of our universe or a multiverse, but a creation of physical reality itself. And that creator looks like it, that creator must be extremely intelligent. It converted Fred Hoyle, by the way, who used to be the biggest atheistic gadfly in, in the whole physics community, always came out with the atheistic solution. And what does uh, Hoyle say in the end after he looks at all these fine-tuning coincidences? It seems to me that there are no blind forces worth speaking about. Seems that there is some super calculating, super intellect who has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this conclusion to be beyond the shadow of a doubt. Now, kids hear that and they go, whoa, you know, what happened? The evidence, there's evidence. Why are 51% of, of scientists uh, theists? The evidence. Why are 88% of us? You get the point. It's the evidence. Yes, they have faith. You're never, right? The evidence will never convince a person who doesn't want to believe in God. The evidence will never convince a person who doesn't want to believe in a moral agency uh, that he's responsible to outside of himself. It's never going to convince. You got to have faith. Your heart has to be disposed. You have to want God to exist. You, you, you have to, you know, want to, to uh, uh, be responsible to God. You have to entertain the possibility uh, as you're responsible to God that, you know, you could choose terribly wrongly into eternal darkness or terribly rightly into eternal light and joy uh, with Jesus Christ, et cetera. But boy, I'll tell you, uh, it's, it's really amazing what, what you can get there. Uh, let me just uh, quickly go to um, uh, two other areas. I, I want to go, well, module three, let me just tell you what's in module three. Oh, by the way, are the kids mind blown? They're mind blown. For the first time in their life, they figured out, oh, gosh, there's evidence for God from science. I, I've been lied to. You know, it's out there from real physicists. And, and here are all the articles. You know, I'm, I'm not just speaking out of my ear. Okay, the, the, the third thing that's really important um, is it's a bunch of questions that are left unanswered, right? So in module three, we tackle a bunch of unanswered questions. And what are those unanswered questions? Number one, well, what about the Bible and science? I mean, how can you call the Bible a revealed document when science is different? So we just give them what, you know, Pope Pius XII gave them right back in 1950. And, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, this would be in 1942 in a encyclical called Divino Afflante Spiritu. Now, that's a really interesting encyclical, but no time to explain it. He basically says this, that the Bible's truths are sacred truths necessary for salvation. That's what it does. How does it get to those truths? What's its method? It's taking the discernible word of God and trying to interpret it through the authority that, uh, of that discernible source of revelation. That's how it works. That's theology. We're looking at revealed truth. But what does physics do? What does science do? Science is trying to give us a correct explanation and description of the physical universe. And what's its method? Its method is mathematical. It's measurement. It's empirical. Okay. So two different purposes, two different methods. And what Pope Pius XII tells us is, uh, let the, the Bible be the Bible, let sacred theology be sacred theology, and let science be science. Don't be mixing up the two. Don't say, aha, the Bible says 
that the universe is only 6,000 years old instead of 13.8 billion years old. See, you're wrong. It was never the intention of the biblical author. The biblical author has only four four themes, which are, you know, within the context of his purpose to tell you that God is uh, a one and there is no other God but him. So there's not a multiplicity of gods. Number two, all natural things are not gods, like a sea god, a mountain god, a sky god, sun god. Instead, there is one god and everything else is a creature. It was fashioned and created by God. Happens to comport with science and and philosophy, but it's a revealed truth, uh, which I find just utterly fascinating. But that's what he says. Is that necessary for salvation? Of course it is. Number three, human beings are not cannon fodder for the gods. Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. They have you know, the, the dignity of the image and likeness of God, and they're not cannon fodder. They're good. They're expected to be just, etc. Fourth thing is matter's not evil in itself. Right. This is what the, the Gilgamesh epic and other kinds of epics at the time that the biblical author is facing 500 to 600 BC. Right. The poor guy is is out there battling all these other myths, and you know, uh, matter is evil. But he's you know clearly God looks back on all of these things after he creates them, and he sees that they're good. Okay, uh, you know you, you can imagine what would have happened in 600 BC. You know, if somebody had said in the beginning was a quantum cosmological configuration integrating the four primary forces of physics, and it unraveled into a space-time configuration. General relativistic theory uh, can describe it, uh, you know, after its uh, first uh, 10 to the minus 42nd of a second. And these guys are going, what, what, what's going on? You know, strong nuclear force unfolds, and the electroweak force unfolds, and the gravitational force already been turned into a space-time field. You know, all these people in 500 BC go, what, what? It's not necessary for salvation. And by the way, they couldn't have understood it anyway. So we, our, our hope is that, you know, they're laughing practically at the very prospect of trying to get a complete physical description in 500 to 600 BC. God has one purpose in mind, get us to heaven. That's what he's got in mind. And so sacred truth is necessary for salvation. That's really important. The exact physical description of the universe, not so important. I like to know these things, but not necessary for salvation. Okay, and then really quickly, uh, just get you into the, uh, um, you know, the other questions. We take the Galileo question. Uh, we also look at the, you know, evolution. Can Catholics believe in evolution? Well, fifty-one percent of of uh, uh, physicists are are uh, um, theists. You can believe that Darwinian em- evolution is not the big deal. This is not the big deal. Uh, Darwinian evolution is merely materialistic, precluding the existence of a soul. We've got plenty of evidence for the soul from near-death experience, plenty of evidence from terminal lucidity and good peer-reviewed medical studies. We also have all kinds of of, uh, evidence just from within science itself that shows that a purely Darwinian materialistic flow, it, it can't be correct. Because there simply aren't enough quantum perturbations over the last 13.8 billion years to get anything close to a human being. And that's why even the former agnostic Thomas Nagel wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Neo-Darwinian Materialistic um, uh, 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 View of Evolution is Almost Certainly Wrong. That's not coming from a Catholic. 
It's coming from a guy who who profoundly, you know, has, has that perspective. And he just says, it's just not going to work. And we can show it's not going to work. So it's okay to be a, a, a subscriber to theistic evolution, that God is helping the evolutionary process along, that God is a final cause, or he front loads order into the universe from the beginning, and that we do have a soul. And so God is interacting with an evolutionary process, and we give a whole bunch of quotes from a whole bunch of famous scientists who happen to be uh, theistic evolution uh, folks. And so, you know, enough said. So that, that's an important question. Aliens, it's a big deal for the kids. They got to know. You know, I mean, are there aliens? You know, if there are aliens, is the Catholic Church saying no? Of course, the Catholic Church doesn't say no to aliens at all. I mean, if God can create human beings, you know, with a transcendent soul that desire perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home, etc., he can do that. He can create other beings and other planets that have the same soul, the same transcendental desires, the same complex cerebral cortex integrated with that soul, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No problem, right? So th- th- that's not a problem. So let's suppose God. Uh, let's suppose we encounter, you know, alien civilization number one. We get up there. And these guys, they have mathematics like us. They have language like us. They have transcendental desires like us. They've even had near-death experiences like us, terminal acidity like us. We go, hey, wait a minute. These guys are like us. Oh, well, they must have had God as a creator of their soul because you're going to need a transphysical cause of your soul, which is a transphysical entity. So you're going to have to have God creating that. So we must make the assumption if we see people like ourselves, they have souls, and those souls were created by God, a transphysical cause. And if that's the case, we ought to catechize them and baptize them because the crucifixion, passion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to apply to them as much as it is to us. There was no stopping the effects of the unconditional love of Jesus Christ for the world. There's no stopping it um, when you uh, uh, go uh, uh, beyond um you know, Israel, right? You, you know, the effect, of, this is just for Jewish people. No, we said it's applied to everywhere in the world. Well, the world today is the cosmos. It applies to everywhere in the universe. So no problem. Baptize them. Don't get worried about whether they exist. If they do, we got our job in front of us and we know how to, to, to catechize them. We'll catechize them not only with revealed truth, but with science. I'll give you a teaser for next week. And then I'm going to, because this merits a lot more time than I have, and I don't want to truncate the questions and answers. But here's the the quick uh, uh, upshot. There, you won't believe this, but there's a ton of great evidence for Jesus that's from extra testamental sources like Tacitus and uh, Flavius Josephus, etc. More than that, the new arguments for the resurrection of Jesus uh, that have been put out by N.T. Wright in his great book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and the new arguments in defense of the history of Jesus' miracles done by his own authority. And then uh, by, that's by John P. Meyer's second book in, in his uh, you know, like, you know, Marginal Jew. Uh, all these things are really quite amazing books. But above all, this Shroud of Turin is a stunner. I'll leave you with a teaser. It's going to take between 6 to 8 billion watts of light energy to produce that image, six to eight billion, that's like a half a million searchlights of light have to be coming out of that body, pulsating from vacuum ultraviolet radiation for one forty billionth of a second to produce that image. And the blood evidence shows the most remarkable confirmation of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion 
totally mind blowing to the kids. This module, module number four is so important. You cannot let the kids out of it. I mean, obviously I think all the modules five, six, and seven are also important, but one, two, three, and four, they're big deals. They respond to the kids' questions. They come out of there 94% positive. I want to thank you. I know I've been blathering on, uh, you know, and never let uh, a Jesuit have a podium. Uh, they'll never shut up. But the main thing is I just wanted to say that uh, this is very, very important. CredibleCatholic.com. Look at the modules. They're voiceover PowerPoints, easy to view, embedded videos, very interesting. But if you want the stuff, you know, want the footnotes, you want the equations, got to go to the big book on the same website, CredibleCatholic.com. Go to the big book, click on volume one, two, three, four, five, or seven, whatever you want, and you can get uh, the stuff. Okay. Thank you very, very much, everybody. Questions and answers now. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer, um, for really a fantastic presentation. Yeah. Martin Lopez, I see you have a hand. Go ahead. Hi, Father. Hi. I really appreciate your talk. I have your video, Cosmic Origins. Oh, yeah. Which is amazing. And what I like the most about is the, the your conversation with Father Fessio at the end of it is amazing. Oh, thank you. That should be on, on this website you're talking about. Well, um, it's not Incredible Catholic, but it will be. Uh, you can just go to magiscenter.com. That's M-A-G-I-S center.com. And then just click on where it says free resources. And all you got to do is look up Cosmic Origins. And okay. so what it is is an interview um, uh, with, uh, you know, Arno Penzias, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering the 2.7 degree Kelvin uh, uniformly distributed radiation that proved the Big Bang. We've got uh, so many guys. We've got uh, John Polkinghorne, uh, who was the uh, chairman of the uh, particle physics department there at uh, Cambridge University for years and years, became a, a priest, an Anglican priest. Uh, then uh, uh, we, we also have uh, uh, Jennifer Weissman. Uh, uh, who's there? And then, of course, Owen Gingrich, the granddaddy of of, of uh, astronomers at uh, Harvard University, uh, and they're all talking about their faith. And it is a remarkable little video there. And of course, the the interplay with the Father Fessio is uh, right at the end there. And um, um, it's not part of the actual video itself, but boy, if you want the physicists talking about their faith, cosmic origin is it. Just go to Montecenter.com. Click on free resources. Click on scholarly resource, and you'll see right there, uh, Cosmic Origin. That's the name of the video. Free of charge. Everything's free. I, I do have a question. What What do you mean by ego comparative? Oh, happiness. Uh, you know, I didn't get into the four levels of happiness today. Oh. Can I defer that question until next week? It's a great question. Should have defined it. Didn't. But basically, it means I get my happiness from getting some ego comparative advantage. So when people go around thinking, who's achieving more, who's achieving less, who's got more power, who's got less power, who's more intelligent, who's less intelligent, more athletic, less athletic, more beautiful, less beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. They go on the comparing all the time and they're finally, you know, they're going, uh, uh, oh, okay, you know, I, I got on my, you know, on my uh, Facebook account now and my Instagram account, uh, I got myself at the, uh, with the celebrity at the best party and with the best clothes and eating at the best restaurant, man, I got ego comparative advantage going through the ceiling. The rest of these guys, they're just a bunch of bums. They can't compare with me. If that's the way you're living, then that's called ego comparative advantage or level two. And I'm telling you, it's, 
it's suicide because it'll never satisfy. It leaves us empty and then it produces jealousy, fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem, you know, ego rage, ego blame, you know, self-pity beyond but inferiority, superiority, you know, the, the range of negative emotions is profound. That's why the suicide rate and the depression rate and the anxiety rate and the homicide rate are skyrocketing in 15 years among our young people. So great question, but that, that's, that's one of the reasons. The other reason is no God, you have no sense of hope, no sense of transcendence. And uh, by the way, really interesting American Psychiatric Association poll, right, that, that shows pretty conclusively that people who are non-religiously affiliated, so we're a poll comparing religiously affiliated people to non-religiously affiliated people. Non-religiously affiliated people have significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, familial tensions, and suicide. Hmm. This should tell us something if we have been able to eliminate all the other relevant factors. So just saying, you know, um, it's going to be really important, but that goes next week when we talk about module six. Um, James, why don't you go ahead and ask your question? My question is, have the atheists voiced any sort of a, a oppositional uh, position to the BVG uh, proof? Uh, because we're going to face that uh, probably with kids uh, as more and more of the atheists become familiar with it. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the BVG proof, um, there's been no shortage of attempts to try and get around it um, since 2003. But um, like I said, they, they don't work. And the three guys who devised it, uh, they're no slouches. But the main thing to remember is Lincoln's charge, right? He just basically said, you're not going to avoid it. Now, Sean Carroll has tried to get out of it by appealing to a non-entropic uh, non uh, um, uh, multiverse. But the non-entropic multiverse, as uh, two really important physicists uh, uh, pointed out, violates empirical evidence violently. So, I mean, it, and I've got those quotes in there that basically say, hey, you, you want to try a, a Sean Carroll exit? You know, that's make-believe exit because it... Uh, that, that kind of a multiverse is not going to be compatible. And by the way, neither is a string theory landscape, right? That's not going to be able to do it. So right now, there isn't an exit and parachute from BDG, uh, especially when you combine it with uh, entropy. And, uh, and there have been some no shortage of attempts. So the one thing I, I would also say with the kids is just say, look, you know, science can always find something new. Could BVG go down for the count? It could. Uh, could entropy go down for the count? It could. Could the combination of them go down for the count? It could. Are, is it likely that this will happen? No, because BVG is universally applicable to everything on the basis of only one condition. So it's if A is true, namely if you have um, uh, an average uh, expansion rate greater than zero, then B is true. You have to have a beginning of that physical configuration. That's what makes it so difficult. See, if it were multiple conditions that had to be together, that would be a much easier way to disprove it. But one condition, oh, that's tough. The second thing is entropy. You've always got to deal with what um, Einstein basically said. He said, you know, if all the laws of physics fall, there will be one that remains. The second law of thermodynamics, that's basically the law of entropy. 
And the reason why it remains is because it's not based on observable evidence of physics, but it's based on you know how statistics and probability apply to physical systems. Essentially, high-order systems, that's low entropy, high-order systems are very, very improbable by comparison to low-order systems. And that can be proved mathematically. And so Einstein said, I would bet that if everything else is disproved in the whole of physics, thermodynamic second entropy will not be disproved. And that's why these two sources of evidence, they're like, oh, they're strong. Now, like I said, anything in science can change. But odds are not likely, not likely. Good question. Thank you. We have a question coming in from an anonymous attendee, and they're asking, is there any historical record of near-death experiences prior to the advent of modern medicine? Do these experiences, um, do we see them across faiths and cultures? Yes, uh, all of the above. Yes, yes. And um, uh, first of all, they're, they're certain, going all the way back to the Tibetan and Egyptian books of the dead. Uh, you know, now you say, well, that's journeys, that's kind of mythological and so forth and so on. And, and of course, we don't have the kind of scientific validation. But yes, there is this definite sense of an eternity that goes beyond. And it just seems to betray that, you know, somebody has kind of awakened from a death experience and come back and reported various things. So um, we can see that in both the Egyptian Tibetan books of the dead, which were very, very old. And uh, by the way, uh, we can see that in a variety of other sources. So yes, it goes back in history quite a bit of time, but it's not scientifically validated. You know, we don't have a clock ticking. We don't have, you know, the beeps of a machine that we can articulate, you know, and coordinate what a person is reporting with, you know, the number of beeps that have taken place, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have that kind of precision. Uh, we don't have the precision of, you know, blind people seeing uh, during uh, uh, clinical death and being able to validate that and examine the physicalist explanations. That stuff we don't have. But oh yeah, um, uh, near-death experiences are not only uh, prior, uh, going back really you know, thousands of years, uh, probably 3,000 years we have sources of that. The second thing is uh, other cultures. Yes, uh, other cultures do have very similar experiences. Certainly um, the, the tunnel uh, experience that goes to the other side, that the white light, the seeing oneself, uh, you know, from above and beyond, right, their body looking down, et cetera. Uh, they are there um, in other people's experiences. In fact, what's kind of interesting is now the, the Journal of Clinical Care um, Medicine, uh, just this is about a, a year ago, published a whole set of near-death experiences of really little kids. I mean, we're talking about in, infants who are like three months to six months old. Now you say, well, how in the world can you verify that they're having a near-death experience and hardly capable of any significant articulation except gurgle, gurgle. You know, what's the deal there? Well, you know, for example, here's, here's one uh, instance. So this boy uh, who ha did, in fact, have a cardiac arrest uh, when he was uh, six months old, um, and uh, he um, slipped away, but they were able to resuscitate him. So uh, one day, you know, his parents come in and say, you know, your grandma died. And he goes, oh, did she go through the tunnel and meet the white light at the end? And everybody's looking and saying, oh, how did you find out about that? Just, I saw it. So again, you know, you start looking at it and the implications of it. 
yeah, so this happens even with very young people. Um, I, I mean, six months old is, is pretty young when, uh, when he had his, you know, his uh, clinical death. Father Spitzer, allow me to conclude with this one question. Frank is writing in and he says, Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are they who have not seen but have believed. And he's wondering if we have faith, um, why would we need scientific proofs? And those who have faith, what, what do scientific proofs give to them? Yeah, Thomas Aquinas actually commented on this himself. You know, he, he, he just said, look, faith and reason have to come from the same source. Now, you could have faith, but, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that doesn't need any kind of proof whatsoever. There's no problem there. In fact, 30% of the population are uh, what I call affective intuitives, like my mother. My mother picks up a baby. She goes, isn't this baby wonderful? Therefore, God exists. It's a miracle. You know, and so I'm picking up the baby and I'm going, Mom, it's not working for me. It just didn't happen. Now, I'm not an intuitive affective. Uh, I am an analytical. And so basically for analyticals, you're going to have to respond to what Thomas Aquinas called that convergence of faith and reason. You know, to say that everybody has to have faith alone without any convergence of reason um, actually has two problems with it. The first problem is, you need to confront the culture. The culture is screaming at this whole younger generation, screaming that God does not exist. Science proves that God does not exist. Jesus Christ never existed. And science proves that Jesus Christ never exists. They are, you can't just leave them there and say, just have faith. It won't work. I was one of those kids. I used to go around and say, is there any kind of proof here? Uh, you know, I'm getting flack here at my high school, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really having a, uh, uh, you know, a major time here. And, uh, and uh, people go, yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, my mom's telling me, hold the baby, you know, or, you know, somebody's saying, just pray harder. And the priest is telling me it's a mystery. It didn't work. It almost led to my demise. I didn't have a faith that was meant to be an infinite Kierkegaardian leap of faith. I just didn't. And Catholics are never expected to do this, as Thomas Aquinas said. Thomas, Catholicism from time immemorial has always said, look, use reason every place you can. Use empirical data and science every place you can. So we've got this big, huge chasm. And here we got Protestant, you know, Kierkegaard. And he goes, okay, I'm going to take a wind up. And I'm going to run and I'm going to move right over the infinite chasm by a pure, uh, 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 you know, infinite act of passion and faith. And boom, I'll land on the other side. That's great. Some people can do that. A lot of people can't, especially in, uh, you know, title of my talk, a secular culture, right? Uh, a lot of people just can't do it. And so what did Thomas say? Build the bridge of reason. Take this piece of evidence, take this piece of evidence, take this piece of evidence, take this piece, and build the bridge all the way across the, the chasm as far as you can go. And then what remains now, take the leap of faith. I want to believe in God. I want my heart to be disposed. I want God to exist, not just so I can have eternal life, but I'm, I admit it, uh, that's certainly. But also, uh, you know, I do want to be responsible uh, to, to God. I don't want to be alone in the cosmos by myself with Spitzer at his eco-comparative best, right? And no God to comfort me. I don't want to be uh, alone with my anxieties. I, I want the Lord. I want to be in relationship with him. 
And, and so that, you know, I mean, my precious autonomy is nothing compared to that desire that I have in my heart for God to, to be in relationship with the Lord. So that's, that's the main thing that's there. Now, uh, you know, uh, I'll leave you with John Henry Newman, a very good Catholic guy, but Cardinal just got uh, uh, canonized, uh, one of the big influences in my life. But he had a thing, uh, a methodology called informal inference. This, this, is, this is what Catholics do. They make informal inferences. And so I'm going, okay, what's an informal inference? He says, you just take a look at all the evidence you can get that's antecedently probabilistic. So that means, okay, I look at near-death experiences. Do I think that this is probabilistic and convincing? Yes, I do. I, I, but I'm not saying it's absolute. I look at this proof for the existence of God, as, and I see, ah, that's antecedently uh, probabilistic. I like Lonergan's proof for the existence of God. I like my own metaphysical proof for the existence of God. I think it's antecedently probabilistic. Do I, am I saying this is for sure? No, but it, it's part of the puzzle. And, and then I, I, I take a look at the uh, evidence for God from contemporary physics, the board of Lincoln and good proof, the entropy evidence, the fine-tuning coincidence, et cetera, et cetera. And I look at that and I go, well, that's antecedently probabilistic. That points uh, from science uh, to a God uh, outside of universal space-time asymmetry who's highly intelligent. And I go, okay, that's great. So I assemble all these things. I get the little puzzle piece. I put them all together. And what he says is an informal inference is when I take a multitude um, of uh, antecedently probabilistic truths from a variety of different vantage points, evidence sets, and disciplines, and they all point in the same direction. God exists, the soul exists, Jesus Christ existed, and, and, and was raised from the dead. And I put it all together, and it sort of says informally, by the convergence, complementarity, and um, uh, mutual um, corroboration of all these uh, evidence sets. So co convergence, uh, you know, complementarity and uh, corroboration of all the evidence sets. It points to Jesus Christ is Savior. And, you know, that's the best I can do. Well, that's a pretty darn good truth, says uh, Newman. And you can then ground your faith in that. We as Catholics do not have to be fideists. We as Catholics can believe in that convergence of faith and reason that God would not leave us bereft to a huge affective intuitive leap. God bless my mother. I love her to death. I mean, she just never had a question. You know, she just felt it inside of her. She get the baby, the whole thing. You know, it's great. But we don't have to do that. We've got Newman. We've got Aquinas. We've got that convergence of faith and reason. And so that's where, uh, you know, uh, let's help our analytically oriented kids. Let's help our action-oriented kids, as well as our effectively, intuitively oriented kids. Let's help them all to get into the kingdom of heaven. But boy, we're confronting a secular culture. Make no, uh, you know, no bones about it. Do not confront what they're purporting to be reasonable evidence. Do not say just to have more faith. It won't work. I'm telling you, unless you're an affective intuitive, it won't work. You're just going to have to say, you know, let's look at this evidence. And let's see if there's a reasonable response that's much better than the junk that Dawkins is giving us. By the way, there's so many holes in his argument, you know, that's for another subject tomorrow. Anyway, that's, that's my conclusion. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Father Spitzer, for being with us. Um, this has really been a, a blessing to be with you. Yes, Father. Can I conclude with a prayer? I was about to ask if you oh, would. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your glory manifest in the heavens, your glory manifest in philosophy and logic, your glory manifest in the sciences, your glory manifest in the hearts of human beings, your glory manifest in the love that surrounds us in the world, your glory manifest in your providential care and inspiration and guidance and protection, your glory that is everywhere present, showing your love, showing your existence, showing your presence, showing that you want to have relationship with us and showing that your son is truly not only your son, Emmanuel, God with us, but is also the unconditional love who saves us and can save us from our sins. We ask you to give us enough wisdom and enough fortitude and courage to bring that to the world through him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.